Today on ASHA Voices, telepractice, myths, and realities. What can the VA teach us about what's possible through telepractice? And how is its use of telepractice different than what we see from other healthcare providers? As we become more comfortable living and working in a virtual world, we talk to a clinician from the VA. She cites three main barriers to telepractice. There are a number of barriers to telepractice, one being licensure, two being access, and three being buy-in. Find out how those barriers are addressed at the VA and hear our guest run through a list of six common misconceptions about telepractice, correcting myths, and sharing experiences from her career. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the Hannon Center. Is there a way to offer effective family-centered intervention online? Discover how the Hannon Center has transformed telepractice into a structured research-based approach you can trust. Visit hannon.org slash telepractice. Support for ASHA Voices also comes from ASHA's Office of Government Affairs and Public Policy. Interested in learning more about the changes in healthcare that affect how you provide services? Check out new resources that explain how your skills fit into value-based care and alternative payment models. Learn more at on.asha.org APM. At the center of conversations about telepractice, you'll often find issues of access. Whether it's the clinician's ability to reach a client they otherwise might not be able to, or if it's a discussion on policy and billing barriers that make implementing telepractice a challenge for some SLPs, access is critical to the conversation. Lindsay Rigler is an innovation specialist and research speech-language pathologist with the Cincinnati Veterans Affairs Medical Center. She's an SLP, and she has expertise in cognitive rehabilitation. While many of us may have begun to see telepractice in a new light, last year, Lindsay's here to share even another perspective on telepractice, or telehealth as Lindsay calls it. Her perspective is from inside the VA, which is free from so many barriers that clinicians so often run into. And she shares what we can learn from this alternate view of the service delivery model. Lindsay will explain. I asked her to take me to the beginning and tell me about the VA's interest in telepractice and how that got started. Sure. So a number of years ago, we started with video conference phones. VA recognized the need to improve access to care and identified that veterans now are different than veterans in years past. Folks were coming home from their time abroad in in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they had families and jobs to return to, and they couldn't see their provider at two o'clock in the afternoon twice a week. We had to adapt and pivot to a way that we could improve access to care for our nation's heroes. So we started with video conference phones. We did that for a little while, and then we moved to another video conferencing platform called Cisco Jabber. And that platform, although it was better than the video conference phones, it was not very user-friendly. It required a number of copying and pasting modalities, and for veterans with reduced vision or limited manual dexterity or just lack of awareness for technology-based modalities, it was quite cumbersome. And they've then, in the last three years, developed the VA Video Connect, which is a much easier user-friendly platform. And they continue to iterate based on user feedback. One thing I'm hearing you say is that an issue for some veterans was being able to drive or otherwise visit a clinician multiple times per week. But I can also imagine that there might be barriers for telepractice. Absolutely. As you alluded to, there are a number of barriers to telepractice, one being licensure, two being access, and three being buy-in. In 2018, VA passed Anywhere to Anywhere, which is authority of healthcare providers to practice telehealth across state lines. And that really was the catalyst that we needed to improve access to care. So that's a removal of a barrier for providing the services. Uh, the other thing I was wondering about was for 
veterans, is technology ever a barrier for them to access their provider? Certainly, technology can always be a barrier, whether it be the lack of a tablet or the lack of the internet access to high-speed internet. And the VA has come up with this wonderful program called the Digital Divide, and it's a consult-based service run by Social Work, where if I, as a speech-language pathologist, want to provide therapy to a veteran who lacks the access, I can place a consult. The social worker reviews it. They call the veteran. They do a series of intake questions. They're looking for food insecurities and a number of other health factors. And then if they qualify, we send the tablet directly to their house. It's 4G capable, so they don't have to have Wi-Fi. And it's simple to use. You turn the, the tablet on and you press connect, and there you are. We've talked about working between states. We've talked about the veteran's access to both clinicians and to technology. I understand that the VA has also removed a few other barriers. Could you talk about those? What other things have incentivized the use of telepractice or just made it more available? Sure. So we eliminated the copay for any specialty care provider doing telehealth into the home. And that's a big financial incentivizing aspect for veterans who may be on a fixed income. You know, a speech pathologist as a specialty care service, sometimes our copays can be $50 a visit. And if I'm seeing somebody for voice therapy three times a week or four times a week, that can be quite expensive. So if we see the veteran in the convenience of their home environment, that eliminates that copay. A part of the reason why I wanted to speak with Lindsay about telepractice was to see what was possible for patients and clinicians when these common barriers to service were removed. Many of the conclusions Lindsay observed will be similar to those that come from SLPs outside of the VA. The same principles apply. Still, Lindsay says, telepractice, it's not for everyone. Telehealth is not for everyone. It's not meant for every diagnosis. And it's important that as the provider, you recognize the needs of your patient. And, you know, last year, everybody had to do a hard pivot back to utilizing telehealth modalities. And we we were trying to put a round peg in a square hole based on the needs because there wasn't any other option. Now that things are opening back up again, as a clinician, you really need to be sensitive to the needs of the patient and don't force it if it's not necessary, right? If the patient prefers to come in face-to-face and you're able to accommodate them, okay. Okay. But if the patient wants to be seen through telehealth, then let's do that too. And that's an important point too in terms of barriers. Oftentimes, practitioners think that it's the patient that wouldn't want to do it or they've heard that people don't like it. Well, you know, do it yourself and try it. Try it three times. I always say if you can try it three times, then tell me you don't like it. But don't do it once and fail or do it twice and fail. Do it three times and have it work and have it succeed and then tell me what you like or don't like about it. Have you found you're able to reach veterans that you otherwise might not have through telepractice? Absolutely. If you think about some of our older populations, I, you know, I live in Ohio, and what happens every fall? Everybody goes down south. The snowbirds fly south, right? So with this Anywhere to Anywhere, we are able to maintain continuity of care. People, if you, if you establish care in Cincinnati and then you travel south for the winter, great. We can continue to see you through telehealth modalities. It's a wonderful way to ensure that veterans receive the care that they need. After hearing the many differences in the way the VA is allowed to operate, I asked Lindsay what the VA might teach other clinicians about what's possible through telepractice. The bottom line is that the possibilities are endless. And I think with the right training and the right mindset, clinicians can continue to utilize telehealth in whatever way they imagine. You know, we have we are now kind of virtuing into the, the virtual reality world and the hologram world, and there are so many possibilities. When you say hologram, I'm picturing a display of lights, 3D image created through light, projected. I picture something almost from Star Wars. Is this what you're talking about? 
Yeah. So think about coming in, you know, it's an unfortunate case that we would have to use such, you know, interesting technology. But if someone did have a cancer diagnosis, let's say in this case, you know, laryngeal cancer, and they come in just to meet with their ENT and their SLP, and let's say the ENT is in Cleveland who has expertise in this particular type of cancer, and you put these virtual reality glasses on, and if you swipe within the goggles that you're wearing, you can peel away different layers of tissue to where you reveal where the mass is. And that gives the veteran, they're looking at their own anatomy through virtual reality hologram-based goggles. And it's incredible to be able to give a patient insight into what they're looking at. And it's one thing to look at a static image on a screen or even to look at their real images through a video stroboscopy, but to see it in real time is something completely different. Is this technology you're currently using? We are piloting this in the VA innovation ecosystem. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're running through six commonly held misconceptions about telepractice. And Lindsay clears them up using experiences from the VA. Support for Asha Voices comes from the Hannon Center. The Hannon Center's telepractice programs make it easy for you to involve parents in their child's early language intervention from the comfort of their homes. As a Hannon member, you have the option to lead evidence-based parent programs online while maintaining best practice principles. Interactive group sessions, practice opportunities, and parent-to-parent support ensure the same high-quality learning experience as Hannon's acclaimed in-person programs. Visit hannon.org telepractice. Support for ASHA Voices also comes from ASHA's Office of Government Affairs and Public Policy. Check out new resources on alternative payment models, or APMs. Learn how your services fit into the changing healthcare world and find more information about value-based care, including what APMs mean for reimbursement and how ASHA is engaging on issues surrounding APMs. Find those resources at on.asha.org APM. I want to go through a list of misconceptions about telepractice. We'll be sort of myth-busting. These are common things that people might say about reasons why not to do telepractice or why they think it's not possible. This list comes from the ASHA healthcare team, and I've got six items, so uh, let's get started. Okay, so if you've been listening to the podcast, you'll know about this one, but um, number one is you cannot provide dysphagia services remotely. Have you found this to be... True or untrue? Untrue. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Is that something that the VA offers? Absolutely. We do dysphagia intervention through telehealth and have been for quite some time. Again, recognizing the limitations, we can't physically touch the veteran. But again, if you have a caregiver present, if you, and again, as we talked about before, we have to recognize the patient and the need. If we suspect, you know, based on chart review that the veteran is a high risk for aspiration, then maybe this isn't the best modality to do dysphagia intervention. But by and large, use your clinical judgment and, and document what the limitations are. For more on what's possible with telepractice and dysphagia, I recommend checking out the ASHA Voices archive. You can hear interviews with experts like Georgia Malandraki, an SLP who works specifically with telepractice and dysphagia. She's been featured on two episodes, and I'm highlighting her specifically because she's participating in the upcoming ASHA online conference called Empowering SLPs in Healthcare, Breaking Barriers and Shaping Solutions. You can find details about that at asha.org events. Moving on to item number two on my list, it reads, you always need a facilitator with a patient to make telepractice work. I asked Lindsay how a clinician can make telepractice work if the client or the patient 
or in her case, the veteran is not with anyone else? Great question. And although I would say that a facilitator, a caregiver, whomever is always ideal, you can absolutely conduct telehealth in the absence of one. And again, it's communicating with your patient, set them up for success. If you have the opportunity to meet with with your patient face-to-face prior to your telehealth visit, review what strategies are important for a successful telehealth visit. Lighting is important, the angle of the camera, familiarizing the patient with the technology, being able to communicate what the needs are. And honestly, as the clinician, if you have a solid foundational understanding of the telehealth platform, you can walk that person through how to change the view on their tablet, on their computer, on their smartphone to maximize the outcome of the visit. We're going to go on to number three now. And this one is you have two options. You can only do telepractice or you can only do in-person. You can't combine them for a hybrid approach. Have you ever seen experiences where a hybrid approach is appropriate? Absolutely. A hybrid. I, I totally encourage a hybrid approach. Oftentimes, if you have to do an evaluation in person and then you go home or the person goes home and, and you do your follow-up for their home-based program, that's ideal. I think if in some instances, patients who maybe lack transportation and modality, if they, if they have to be seen in clinic, if you give them a diet recommendation, they come in for a modified barium swallow and study, and then you follow up with them two days later in their home to see, one, if they're continuing their exercises, if they're continuing their modified diet, and check in with them. I absolutely am 100% for a hybrid approach. That's a really great example. Okay, so here we're going to go to number four. The quality of care in remote sessions is not as high as it is for in-person sessions. This is something that I think a lot of clinicians are concerned about. It's something that I think a lot of people receiving those services, that may be where their apprehension could come from. You're exactly right. And we hear this quite often. But I have to argue that seeing someone in their home environment is very different than seeing them in your sterile clinic environment. And again, depending on what you're seeing your veteran for or what you're you're treating your patient for, if you're doing a cognitive rehab-based intervention, to see them in their home environment is amazing because you can really use that opportunity to provide functional skills. If you are doing swallowing therapy in the home, you can utilize the food in their cabinet, things that they're familiar with eating, not, you know, your Lorna Dune cookies. They may not like those cookies and they may never eat them. So again, think about the practicality of it. To see someone in their home environment is very different than a sterile controlled environment. And I had said cognitive rehab is my bread and butter. And, you know, people sometimes come into the hospital and they do great in my session. Why? Because it's quiet. There's no distractions and they feel comfortable. When you get them home and they have three screaming toddlers in the background and there's construction going on and their lighting is terrible because they have a migraine and the lights are turned off, that's a completely different environment. And we need to be able to give them the strategies that they need to be successful in their home environment, not in the clinic environment. When we talk about patient-centered care, this is giving an option to maybe more acutely zone in on just what that patient would be needing. Absolutely. It's recognizing the needs of the veterans and providing them functional strategies to improve their quality of life. You know, we sometimes do book-based strategies to get the mind going, but really there's nothing better than seeing patient in their home or work environment and trying to help them navigate existing problems, right? Not giving them some paper-based activity. This is a good transition to number five. The fifth point is you cannot target functional goals remotely. Um, that's kind of what we're talking about, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I mean, there's no better way to function target goals than in the home or work environment. If you have somebody that's perhaps predisposed to anxiety, 
and they have to drive in a metropolitan area and parking is a nightmare. By the time they get to your office, they're already keyed up and they're a little bit anxious. And so their concentration might be impaired or maybe they feel embarrassed by having to go see a speech pathologist. And so there's that stigma of having to need help. And what if they're seen waiting in the waiting room? All those barriers and all that all that hype is removed by seeing somebody in their home or work environment. I can't tell you how many guys I have who I see over their lunch break and they go out into their car, they turn the car on and I'm connected to their Bluetooth. And we talk about functional problems that they've had that morning and strategies to help tackle those barriers. So whether it's scheduling, whether it's organization, whether it's prospective memory training and managing their schedule and utilizing external aids to help improve. And I can imagine too, that that can be more comfortable for someone to be able to to do these things that can sometimes be difficult conversations in an environment that they feel comfortable. Absolutely. Establishing therapeutic rapport is something that can be very challenging for some people. And by you coming to them in their comfortable environment, that just helps you know, expedite the process along. I'm not sure if you were able to read my mind right here, but the, the sixth misconception is you cannot build rapport via remote platforms. And what I'm hearing you say is that's very much untrue. Very much untrue. And again, it's not for everyone. And there are certain people who may not enjoy communicating through telehealth modalities. But by and large, I find in some instances, it's quite easier because again, we're going into their environment. We're not asking them to come into the medical center and risk exposure or risk you know, parking hazards or the stress of trying to take time off of work or the stress of trying to find a babysitter to watch their kids. None of that. We can come to them at a time that's most convenient for them. Well, I like that we've been able to go through so many of these misconceptions, clear them up, that you're able to give us a view into what telepractice might be like if digital barriers, if interstate barriers and financial barriers were not present as seen through the VA's offerings. You've mentioned that telepractice isn't right for everyone. These were myths, but what are some of the actual drawbacks, the things that you found telepractice doesn't do so well? That's a really good question. Well, it doesn't allow you to physically touch the person. In some instances, when you can't get the technology figured out, veterans become frustrated, and then your opportunity to connect with them and establish that rapport might be lost. In in some instances, may not be able to be repaired because they were so frustrated with the way things went down. It sometimes doesn't allow you to see the entire person, Um, but by and large, there aren't a whole lot of downsides. Within the private sector, reimbursement is a huge downfall, and I know ASHA is working quite feverishly to help ensure that codes continue to be added for reimbursement. Lindsay, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. At the end of the interview, you heard Lindsay mention limitations for SLPs outside of the VA. While the pandemic has allowed for temporary allowances and changes relating to billing and coding, federal and state telepractice policies remain fluid. To find out the latest updates in your state, go to asha.org and click Telepractice Resources in the COVID-19 Updates banner. From there, you'll be able to find many ASHA resources, including state-by-state tracking of laws and regulations, information on reimbursement, and so much more. Finally, I want to again mention ASHA's online conference for SLPs working in healthcare, Empowered SLPs in Healthcare. Beginning June 2nd, this online conference looks at the complex challenges you face 
while working in healthcare. You can hear presentations that touch on many of the issues we've discussed today, including licensure and access, hear a presentation on health disparities and technology, or a presentation by former ASHA Voices guest Georgia Malandraki on using telepractice to treat dysphagia. Register today at asha.org events. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the Hannon Center. Break down barriers and reach more families with the Hannon Center's high-quality telepractice programs. Learn more about becoming Hannon certified and leading online Hannon programs at hannon.org telepractice. Support for ASHA Voices also comes from ASHA's Office of Government Affairs and Public Policy. You can find their latest resources about alternative payment models and value-based care online. Check them out at on.asha.org APM. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.